Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, March 17, 2019. The share IDs for Friday, March the 15th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,664. That's 12664. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,666. That's 12666. This morning, A Vision for You presents Something You've Never Read. Many people consider Alcoholics Anonymous, the program of recovery, and 12 steps, one of the greatest miracles of the 20th century. There's no telling how many lives have been touched by Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step programs of recovery. The many miracles of Alcoholics Anonymous and Overeaters Anonymous work at myriad levels in, and in infinite ways. No two alcoholics or compulsive overeaters work, practice, or live the program in exactly the same way. Some achieve recovery and a richer, more rewarding life after only brief association with AA or OA. Others become immersed in the fellowship with many meetings, service, and repeated returns to and reviews of the big book. As we say, and it's true, it takes what it takes. However, many do ponder what makes Alcoholics Anonymous so unique. What aspect of the program deserves most of the credit? What differentiates this program of recovery from other forms of help for those of us who suffer from these illnesses? And how does one describe the distinctiveness and effectiveness of Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step rooms? Here to expand and expound on a magnificent piece of AA literature which addresses some of these questions is John Kay, a recovered compulsive overeater from Los Angeles. John is a loyal servant and member of Overeaters Anonymous and a vision for you and a devoted messenger of the program of recovery. And it's with great appreciation that I welcome John Kay to the line this morning. Good morning, John. Good morning, Leah. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Mm-hmm. I want to thank Leah for asking this person with Irish on both sides uh, to speak on St. Patrick's Day. You, you guys will all notice I'm wearing green. Um, so anyway, my name is John Kiernan. I'm a recovered compulsive reader from Los Angeles. And uh, I want to thank Leah for letting me do a slightly special, different type of special edition today. Uh, one of my favorite pieces of 12-step literature is one that many people in OA have never seen. Uh, it is an AA pamphlet called The Member's Eye View of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it is, by the way, approved OA literature. All AA literature is approved OA literature. Uh, what it is, is it's a transcription of a talk that was given by one AA member, Alan M. from here in Los Angeles. The talk he gave was to a graduating class of one of the first substance abuse programs in the country here at UCLA, right up the street from me here. Um, he explains AA and the 12-step program, you know, uh, in a different way to his students, him being a PhD psychologist, uh, to his students who are mostly outsiders 
not in recovery. I love this piece of writing because while it's, it's mostly just a restatement of what we read in the big book, it does so in more modern terms. You know, it, gives us, it also gives us new ways of thinking about the program. I also think it's really well written, and it has a lot of memorable lines, also like the big book. Uh, I often give this pamphlet to newcomers who are having trouble with the archaic nature of the big book. Uh, I, I still tell them, hey, we're still going to need the big book to study, but this pamphlet sometimes helps, you know, sort of guide them in. So <clears throat> this morning, I'm going I'm to read parts of this pamphlet, and then I'm going to comment on the sections as I go along. So let's hear how Alan starts the talk. I should like to speak to you about my association with Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been participating in a therapy, and I've been the subject. Tonight I've been asked to talk about that therapy, how objective a member can be about an organization that helped save his life and his sanity is a moot question, but I can try. The ideas contained in AA and the steps are certainly not unique to AA. Man has been beaten to his knees in an admission of personal helplessness since time began. Likewise, since time began, he has turned to the idea of a higher power who would deliver him from his fate. There is obviously no new or different factor here, so where can we turn now in an effort to isolate AA's uniqueness? Could, the, could our answer lie in the manner in which this experience, strength, and hope is shared, and more important, who is sharing them? Long before there was a definition of AA, before there was a big book, before there were steps or traditions or a program of recovery, there was a night in Akron, Ohio, when a man named Bill W., alone in a strange city, shaken and frightened, concluded his only hope of maintaining his present hard-won sobriety was to talk to and try and help another alcoholic. So far as I know, this is the first recorded instance where one alcoholic constantly consciously and deliberately turned to another alcoholic, not to drink with, but to stay sober with. In that fateful meeting of Bill W. and Dr. Bob, an answer was finally given to the old biblical question, if the blind lead the blind, shall they not both fall into the pit? Well, in 1935, the answer, strangely enough, was no, they won't. But perhaps what occurred that evening was not a contradiction to that maxim. Perhaps one who is little less blind, one who can at least discern vague shapes and forms, describe who he saw to one who still lived in total darkness. So think about Bill. He meets Dr. Bob with less than six months of sobriety. Now, I can tell you, most AA groups would never send somebody with less than six months of sobriety out on a 12-step call. Yet, these two amateurs accomplished what all the professional world had yet been able to do. You know, because doctors and psychiatrists have been trying for years to unlock the key to recovery from alcoholism. I mean, Sigmund Freud tried, Alfred Adler tried, Carl Jung tried. But as we see from Roland Hazard's story, even a year of therapy with Dr. Jung only produced one result, a relapse. But luckily for us, Roland came back to New York and became part of this remarkable chain of events that led to the formation of AA. You know, this chain of events went from Europe to New York, back up to Vermont, back to New York, and finally to Akron, Ohio. You know, one of the reasons I say the formation of AA 
I think had to come from some kind of divine guidance is to consider the odds of all of those pieces coming together, you know, all of those planets aligning to help form AA. And to me, I always say that was God playing chess, you know. And, and I also am a true believer that the 12 steps were God's gift to the 20th century. So this next part of the pamphlet highlights an aspect of recovery I've never heard expressed so well. He says, much more important than what was said that evening was who was saying it. Long before the average alcoholic walks through the doors of his first AA meeting, he's sought help from others or has had help offered to him or in some cases even forced on him. But these helpers are always superior beings, spouses, parents, physicians, employers, priests, ministers, rabbis, heck, even bartenders. Well, the moral culpability of the alcoholic and the moral superiority of the helper, even though unstated, are always clearly understood. The overtone of parental disapproval and discipline that these authority figures talk is always present. You know, but for the first time, an alcoholic suddenly heard a different drummer. Instead of that constant and menacing rat-tat-tat of, this is what you should do, he heard the instantly recognizable voice saying, this is what I did. So, you know, we've all had a lifetime of getting helpful suggestions from people. And I say that with quotes around the phrase helpful suggestion. You know, uh, it's coming to OA and seeing the overall structure of program was something very refreshing for most of us to see. You know, nobody telling us what to do, no list of rules we had to follow precisely, no weigh-ins, uh, you know, not even an official food plan. And especially for this cynical person, no dues or fees. Because most of us have spent thousands of dollars trying to conquer this disease, and whoever would tell us we could do it for the least amount of change <laughs> usually got our money. And in terms of authority, well, I have a sponsor who guides me, but he never forces me to do anything. He doesn't tell me what I can or can't eat or how I should interpret the program. And I, in turn, do the same with my sponsees, you know. And we all treat our sponsees like adults, not errant children, you know. And, and this peer-to-peer -peer relationship is, is the key to OA in the program. Because, you know, a sponsor is a guide who hopefully has what you want. You know, he or she is neither a parent nor the food police. You know, even the steps and traditions are suggestions. Well, this tells a newcomer, we're a different group than you've been dealing with your entire life. Really, we are you. You are us. And for most of us, one of the first things that really helped was to hear people in OA talking about doing things with food that we thought we were the only people in the world who did. You know, like, uh, you, know, take, you know, take out the middle of the piece of Wonder Bread and roll it up into a ball of dough and eat it? I mean, you tell some people outside the rooms and, and they look at you funny, but you tell that story in an OA meeting and they're like, yep, been there, done that. <laughs> so let's continue reading from Members' Eye View of Alcoholics Anonymous. He says, I am personally convinced that the basic search of every human being from cradle to grave is to find at least one other human being before whom he can stand completely naked stripped of all pretense and defense, and trust that that person won't harm him because that other person has been stripped naked himself. This lifelong search can begin to end with the first AA encounter. Well, 
I don't know about you guys, but I came into this program with some huge trust issues. You know, if you grew up in an alcoholic household, like I did, where you have a mother who tells you over and over she's never going to drink again, and yet does it over and over. You know, it doesn't build a trusting person. And then to come into program and to see that nobody here is trying to get anything from me or dominate me in any way was refreshing. The people in the room were here for one reason only, to get better, and then to help other sufferers get better. You know, but then to make a fearless and thorough inventory of your misdeeds and your embarrassing missteps throughout your life and tell all that to another human being, that takes trust. I mean, a lot of trust. Well, what helps us all is knowing that the person you're sharing all those flaws with has gone through this same process, him or herself. And this action is the beginning of reestablishing a damaged person's ability to trust. Slowly, the idea of being willing to go through life not in a defensive crouch. It, it seems doable. You know, in nature, there's a story of the lobster. You know, the lobster's only defense from its predators is its shell. But once a year, the lobster needs to molt, you know, to lose its shell. Why? Because even though that shell is a great defense, it also doesn't allow it to grow. To me, this is the perfect metaphor for learning to trust and to grow as a human being. We continue. He says, it seems to me what happens to an alcoholic on his first encounter with AA is that he realizes he's been invited to share in the experience of recovery. And the key word in that sentence is the word share. He's been invited to share as an equal, not as a beggar. No matter what his initial reaction, even the sickest alcoholic, it's hard put to deny to himself that he has been offered understanding, equality, and an already proved way out. And he has been made to feel that he is, in fact, entitled to all this. Indeed, he has earned it simply by being an alcoholic. You know, it comes down to the third tradition here, right? Uh, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. You know, AA even took out the word honest from that first draft, you know? knowing that it's impossible for somebody in the disease to rarely be honest, to have the honest desire to stop. But, you know, what does that mean? It means that someone brand new, you know, maybe still compulsively eating in the parking lot before the meeting, has the same importance as the guy who just celebrated 40 years absent at that meeting. You know, I never felt there was any true hierarchy in the program. And, you know, that's pretty strange for a group of this size, you know? Everyone is invited to participate in everything. You know, we have no servant class. So it's us that makes everything in OA work, from meetings to intergroups to conventions like the birthday party. No matter what the service position in program, we remember that it is service to the fellowship and that we're all but trusted servants. You know, there is no, importantly, there is this is so important because otherwise, you know, with some of our personalities, it, it could be infighting and shocking to, like, you know, move up the ladder of program. You know, and again, I, I can't help but think there's some divine guidance in seeing how that all came to be so that kind of thing was eliminated. Here's another important paragraph from Members I View of Alcoholics Anonymous. He says, if the alcoholic responds to this invitation to join, he then encounters what I believe is AA's second unique factor. AA treats the symptom first. It may come as a surprise to some that since 1935, when this idea was fairly revolutionary, alcoholics has 
Anonymous has consistently emphasized its conviction that alcoholism is, is, alcoholism is, to use its own phrase, the symptom of deeper troubles. However, AA also believes that the cleverest diagnosis of these troubles is of little benefit if the patient dies. And this is my favorite line from the, from the pamphlet. He says, autopsies do not benefit the person upon whom they are performed. Sometime sooner, sometimes later, AA seems to get over to its neophytes that total abstinence, and that's the word he uses, total abstinence is the name of the game. In AA, the cart does come before the horse. The first step is still the first step. No newcomer to AA is ever left with any real doubt that recovery can only begin with the decision to stay away from the first drink. You know, this is such an important statement to hear that hopefully everybody in OA can someday hear. I mean, it's not in the big book because it was so absolutely obvious in AA. But in OA, this idea has never totally been codified, you know, that we have to put the food down first. You know, we have a spiritual, mental, physical disease, and I was always taught that you get sick in that order. You first get sick spiritually, then mentally, and then physically. And then you recover in the reverse order, first physically, then mentally, then spiritually. And in terms of those three parts of the disease, a lot of times we focus on the spiritual part, and other times we focus on the physical part, but not so much on the mental. And to me, the mental part is the bridge between the physical and the spiritual parts of this disease. If we don't stay, as it says in those 10-step promises, in a fit spiritual condition, the mental part of that disease begins to activate. In other words, I could be working full-time at a bakery if I'm spiritually fit because I've been placed in a position of neutrality with the food. If, however, I'm not, that lack of spiritual fitness will come out in my thinking first. And I might say something like, well, you know, I've been working at this bakery for so long, I'm sure I could have a cupcake once in a while. <laughs> and we know where that'll go. And just to reiterate something, again, that's lost in OA, he says no newcomer in AA is ever left with any real doubt that recovery can only begin with the decision to stay away from the first drink. You know, because of the nature of our disease, in particular, that we cannot totally put down our substance, this unspoken AA factor is sometimes lost. You know, sometimes it gets lost because we're in our disease and it warps our thinking. And program uses, and, it, and this disease uses those program thoughts against us. You know, when I was in my relapse and relapse cycle, I went through a time of telling myself, well, you know, I'll work on the steps and, and, and uh, you know, then the abstinence will fall into place, you know. And that was, that was my disease using the program against me. You know, because I've often said that during my relapse, my disease's job, main job every day, was to get me to kick the can down the road one more day on putting the food down. You know, believing you can work the steps and that it will lead to abstinence, to me, that's the OA version of putting whiskey in the milk. You know, our disease loves to find ways to convince us that we're moving towards the goal of abstinence and yet it works to prevent us from ever achieving it. Like my great stalling tactic I used for many years, well, I'm praying for the willingness, you know? 
Now, now, have I ever heard of somebody say they worked the steps and then got abstinent? Yes, on very rare occasion. However, I think for every one of those people who shares that at a meeting, there are hundreds of, hundreds of people still in the disease who hear that and hope that they can hit that, get that same lottery ticket, you know? And when those people don't get it, they often leave program convinced that OA doesn't work. You know, the sad fact is that in my experience over a long time in program and watching hundreds if not thousands of people struggle, and I apologize for those of you who might be still in the disease, we have to put the food down first. To continue from this pamphlet, AA uh, member's eye view of Alcoholics Anonymous, he says here about the recovery process. The intuitive understanding that the alcoholic receives in AA, while compassionate, is not indulgent. The, quote, therapists in AA already have their doctorates in four fields where the alcoholic reigns supreme. Phoniness, self-deception, evasion, and self-pity. He's not asked what he's thinking. He's told what he's thinking. No one waits to trap him in a lie. He's told what lies he's getting ready to tell. In the end, he begins to achieve honesty by default. <laughs> you know, there's no, not much point in trying to fool people who may have invented the game they're playing. <laughs> well, you know, the great thing for most of us is that our sponsors have gone through the same thing and can usually call us out on our BS, <laughs> you know, unless they're people pleasers, which is actually the worst disservice a sponsor can do to a sponsor, to be a people pleaser. I was told by one sponsor, hey, I'm not your mommy, I'm not your friend, your loan department, or your psychologist. I'm here to help you recover through the 12 steps outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then just to speak to that concept of evasion he talks about in that last paragraph, I've got to tell you, I've had very few sponsees outright lie to my face. But boy, many of them take that omission of critical information to the level of an art form. <laughs> So, continuing. Finally, there is a reversal of form which AA's educational process takes. The newcomer to AA is asked not so much to learn new values as to unlearn those he comes in with. Not so much to adapt new goals as to abandon old ones. To my mind, one of the most significant sentences in the entire big book is this. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. The rigidity with which some non-drinking alcoholics will cling to those opinions and those beliefs and convictions they had upon entering program is well-nigh incredible. One of the major objectives of AA therapy is to help the alcoholic finally realize these ideas and become willing to relinquish his death grip on them. You know, I came from a dysfunctional family, and I'm pretty sure that's a pretty common trait in program. You know, maybe it wasn't a family of addiction like mine, but for most of us, it was a family of some kind of dysfunction, you know? Bad ways of looking at life, bad ways of thinking about other people and their intentions, bad ways of coping with life's problems and tough times. You know, to use a buzz phrase, from the recovery world, we had bad modeling. <laughs> well, professionals in that field will often talk about the fact that the things that we learn the earliest are the things we have the most trouble changing or unlearning. And this was certainly true with me. You know, it took years of being in rooms with true recovery 
and to hear how people in recovery handle these tough situations that I began to change some of those deeply ingrained ideas I came in with. I mean, I look back now and the way I used to think of the world and other people, and I think to myself, well, gosh, no wonder I drank, no wonder I compulsively, compulsively overate, you know? I mean, the way of thinking I've been given caused such distress and lack of serenity that doing some addictive substance or action was almost a requirement just to self-soothe. And, you know, as Harlan always says, food wasn't the problem. It was the solution. And continuing, he says, there's a widely held belief in AA that if the newcomer will simply continue to attend meetings, that, quote, something will finally rub off on you. And that implication, of course, is that the something that will rub off will be this so-called miracle of AA. Now, there is no doubt in my mind that many people in AA accept this statement quite literally. I've observed them over the years. They faithfully attend meetings, faithfully waiting for, quote, something to rub off. The funny part about it is that something is rubbing off on them. Death. They sit there week after month after year while mental, spiritual, and physical rigor mortis slowly sets in. I believe the real miracle of AA, the something that will rub off the hope, is simply the alcoholic's willingness to act. You know, sadly, this is something I see a lot in a way. You know, I sometimes wonder if the most dangerous mantra we have is keep coming back. Now, of course, you have to be back in program, but I think it's, it's one of those program concepts that our disease uses against us as well, you know. The thoughts of, well, if I just keep coming back someday, somehow, the abstinence fairy will come down and ding me on the head with abstinence and, and I'll be cured, you know. Well, there's a lot of tough AA groups whose members would say, hey, there's the door. If you've got more field testing to do, go to it. And when you're done, if you're alive, come back because there is a solution. You know, a case could be made that this approach might push an addict to the point of being in enough pain to then be willing to go to any lengths. You know, one of the problems our disease has is it tells us, it puts us in just enough pain to tell us we should do something about our problem but often not enough pain to be willing to go to any lengths. And I think sometimes this keep coming back mantra allows people to never hit that point of pain where they hit total surrender. I know when I came into program the first time, I got hit by that abstinence fairy's wand, you know. Abstinence was easy. It was effortless. I didn't even remember having any real cravings, you know. But, you know, when you get something easy, you figure you'll get it again. So I gave it away. And then the hell began for me, you know, years of it. You know, in AA and NA, you'll hear them sometimes talk about how the addict is always chasing the first high. In other words, the high they got the first time they used their drug of choice can never be achieved again the same way as the first time. Well, I look back now and realize I was chasing that first abstinence. You know, I wanted it to be as easy as it was the first time, without cravings, and most importantly, without any work or effort on my part. You know, what I came to understand is that I, I had a classic OA story. I came in, it was easy, I slipped, and then it wasn't easy. What I realized is that I approached OA the first time like I had every other of the thousands of diets I'd been on in the past. 
I, I came in and said, okay, tell me what to do. And I did it. And like every other diet I've been on, it worked once. Well, I believe if we're really lucky, we get one of those grace absences. But, you know, we only get one. After that, we have to do the work. We need to, as he says in this program, get the willingness to act. Continuing from the pamphlet, he says, from the very beginning, the alcoholic in AA has believed that the physical aspects of our disease would have little import if they were not accompanied by an equally progressive spiritual deterioration. If the major thing we had to worry about was the physical allergy to alcohol, then I believe AA would have never happened because it wouldn't have been needed. I agree. I mean, as has been spoken about many times, if our disease was only the allergy of the body, once we took care of that by stop eating our alcoholic foods, then that would be it, you know? You know, think about it. People who have a deadly peanut allergy, allergy have to be on guard against accidentally ingesting peanuts. But none of them will decide to just try it again, see if there's a problem. Why don't they do that? Because their allergy of the body is not accompanied by the obsession of the mind. Our problem is the obsession of the mind, which, of course, is driven by a spiritual malady. You know, the, he continues, the presentation of the 12 steps as reports of actions taken rather than commandments to be followed also forms the basis of AA's conspicuous absence of any formalized body of dogma or doctrine. No person is ever told he must perform these steps or return to a life of drunkenness. A person who says he's a member of Alcoholics is a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, no matter how sparingly or wholeheartedly he takes the steps. That, what's the translation of that? Our goal is the spiritual awakening and the freedom from food obsession. How you get to that goal is something that has to be worked out for you. I mean, this is especially true when it comes to your food plan. As I've heard said, your abstinence can kill me and my abstinence can kill you. Now, to me, it's, it's about honesty with the food and knowing I can't do it alone because I've got a broken brain. With the triumvirate of God, myself, and another human being, though, I think anything's possible. Now, the important thing to remember is that this organization is called Overeaters Anonymous. It's not called Sugar Anonymous, Carb Anonymous, or even Artificial Sweeteners Anonymous. You know, if you can't eat some or all of those items I just mentioned, well, join a pretty big group of us. But if you can, and you're in a position of neutrality with the food and are moving or moving towards or being at a healthy body weight, well, end of argument. You're abstinent. You have entire abstinence, and don't let anybody define that term for you. Now, when it comes to working the program, I think that's a different story. I think one of the phrases I, I've often heard is the phrase that where somebody will say, well, there's as many ways to work the program as there are people in it. Well, you know, I think you can observe that for people for about one to seven years of recovery. But after that, that road narrows. You know, the people I see here in L.A. with seven or more years of recovery, they work essentially the same program. They read the big book. They work the steps. They sponsor, they give service, and they never stop being vigilant about their food. Not obsessed with it, mind you, but they realize you don't rack up abstinence points to cash in when you're about to slip. 
And most of the people I really admire here in L.A., I mean, people with 20, 30, 40 years of absence, they don't go to meetings to share. They go to meetings to listen. They learned something an old sponsor told me long ago. Nobody ever learned anything from speaking. Continuing reading from a member's idea of Alcoholics Anonymous, he says, since I am speaking to you as present or future counselors rather than alcoholics, there are some aspects of the steps I feel must not be overlooked. The first is something called, crudely, if aptly, the God bit. <laughs> the founders of AA felt that alcoholics needed the help of a power greater than themselves. But again, whether by accident, design, or divine guidance, they wisely refrained from strictly defining this power. While AA literature has used and continues to use the personal pronoun that describes the concept of a personal deity, a belief in this concept is by no means required. In fact, I am convinced that the greater a member's years in AA, the less important the nature of that, this power becomes. I and most members I know seem to progress over the years from a search for a God we can understand to a belief in a God who understands us. You know, for me, I needed to break down the walls of prejudice I had against the G word. <laughs> you know, whenever I heard the word God when I was first, you know, auditing the program, you know, it brought up a lot of bad old memories. What I was told after I joined was that nobody would ever tell me what to believe or that if nobody would tell me I had to believe. They just begged me to keep an open mind. It was far less important that I had a formal belief in a higher power, but it was crucial that I believed I was the lesser power. And you know, I needed to deconstruct all those old beliefs from my childhood. The God I was taught as a child wasn't mine. It was given to me by my parents, and they got it from their parents. And we'd all been using a hand-me-down God for generations. What I had to do is come to believe in a personal higher power that would help me with my problems. And what he says about old timers is true. You know, when I was young and new in program, I had to figure out, okay, what is my higher power and, and how did it work in my life? And how did it communicate with me? Well, you know, the longer I'm around, the less I care about all that. I know there's a God. I know it's not me. And I know my higher power doesn't need me to believe in it in order to help me in my life. As long as my higher power believes in me, I mean, that's really all that matters. And this big, wide tent we're in, it's so important. The word God will mean something different to everyone. And, you know, I don't care what you call God either. You know, some people bristle at hearing the word Jesus mentioned. To me, as long as it's not representing always a whole, I'm fine with it. You know, I'm fine with Jesus, Yahweh, Allah, or Fred, you know. There was a great guy who passed away recently named Richie from out here in L.A. He used to call his God Magic Johnson. You know, who am I to say who's right? Or maybe we're all right in a way, you know? And I will respect what people choose to call their God, just like I want them to respect my right to call myself a recovered compulsive eater, not a recovering one. He continues, the house that AA helps a man build for himself is different for each occupant because a, each occupant is his own architect. For many, AA is kind of a going home, a returning to the faith of his fathers. 
to others, it's a never-ending journey into lands he didn't dream existed. It, it doesn't matter into which group one falls. What is really important is that AA has more than demonstrated that the house it builds can accommodate the rebel as well as the conformist, the radical as well as the conservative, the agnostic as well as the believer. The absence of formalized dogma, the lack of rules and commandments, the nonspecific nature of its definitions, and the flexibility of its framework. All of the things we have thus far considered contribute to this incredible and happy end. You know, I also think 12-step programs are mainly a way, you know, for people to get back to some kind of a belief in a higher power. You know, for those who call themselves atheists or agnostic, as I did when I came in, I tell them to think of the program as a higher power. After all, at the base of this, this is a program of ego reduction. You know, as an addict, I cannot do this alone. You know, as an old sponsor told me once, he was this gruff old AA sponsor, hey, if you could have done this yourself, you'd have done it by now. And I'll tell you, the program does, by the way, require some faith. Not necessarily faith in a higher power, as much as faith in the process. I mean, we're told that doing a four-step might be painful, but it'll help us recover. We're told to be willing to let go of all of our defects so that new, healthier ways of coping and living will replace them. We're told to make amends. I mean, sometimes the people we vehemently dislike, and it will move us toward total recovery. Well, all of those things require faith because many of these actions are front-loaded with pain. We do them, however, because we do have faith, either in the program itself or the people we trust and admire who assured us that this is the way out of the pit of addiction. Alan continues here. We have, exhorted, we have been exhorted by many defenders of the AA faith that, quote, AA is all you need. It never occurs to them that with simple change in that pronoun, that exhortation would be completely accurate that, quote, AA is all I need. That's an individual statement that can strengthen many and trouble no one. In all of AA's literature, I can find no substantiation for the sometimes assumed and sometimes advocated precept that AA therapy is all the recovering or recovered alcoholic should ever be interested in. The oft-heard cry, AA is all you need, has a hollow ring of fear. Fear that if any member dissents from this belief that AA is the one and only, the total and complete answer to an alcoholic's ills, then all the other members will perish. Well, you know, there's two parts of this I want to address. First of all, there's a phrase you see in AA a lot more than OA, and that's first things first. You know, having done numerous things about relapse when it comes to vision, I get calls a lot about relapse. You know, I get a lot of calls. And while most of these calls are from people in relapse, sometimes they're from sponsors whose sponsees are in relapse. And they'll ask me, okay, what part of the big book should I have her read? Or what step should I have her concentrate on? And this is when I tell them, hey, first things first. If someone's in the food, I can read them a hundred different great paragraphs from the big book. And chances are those words will bounce off their heads you know, as to what step they should be concentrating on. Heck, I mean, they're not even at the first one. <laughs> you know, somebody who's drunk with the food will get minimal results with anything from the big book and the steps. 
I tell sponsors, I said, making and getting abstinent for 30 days should be their sponsee's full-time job. And I could tell you the reason is because when I was in relapse, my disease, again, would use whatever it could to distract me. Even perfectly good program things like the big book and the step. But, however, as soon as someone's got firm footing away from the allergy of the body, then they have to roll up their sleeves and dive into the steps in the big book. But never forget, first things first. And when it comes to A, quote, AA is all you need, we need, or in this case, OA is all you need. Remember that it's stated in many places in program literature, quote, we are not professionals. I mean, I'm a huge believer in outside help from therapists and the like. You know, the key, of course, is that outside help being in conjunction with having the food down and working the steps. I mean, I've known people who spent thousands and thousands of dollars trying to cure their addiction with therapists and psychiatrists alone. And it always bothers me when I hear someone talking down therapy. You know, remember, Bill Wilson believed in and utilized therapy. You know, as much as I think I'm a pretty good sponsor, I don't have the training my wife does, who is a PhD psychologist, you know, has, you know. While I can help sponsees at an upper level with emotional problems, a sponsor, a professional can dig down many layers beneath the upper problem to expose the deeper problems that may be causing us distress, sometimes distress we don't even know we have. And many of us need to get to those deeper problems to find long-term recovery, maybe to get out of a relapse cycle. But just like a sponsor, you know, a good therapist requires a good fit between the two. I think the reason some people this outside help is they may have tried therapy with somebody who wasn't a good fit and then stopped because they didn't find it helpful. You know, in another part of special edition I did a while back, I quoted on this par this section from this alcohol members I view of alcoholics anonymous. Because I think Alan's thoughts here on finding a higher power are great. He says, this search for perfection, for the one perfect answer, is the hallmark of the neurotic. Ever since Eden, man has cried out, give me a ritual, give me a word, give me a prayer, give me a chant, give me a cross, a relic, a string of beads, give me a mantra, give me a conundrum, give me something, give me anything, just so long as it's a ma magic, mechanical formula that I can touch or hold or see, say or do, and that all will be well. To apply the same unrealistic yardstick to AA is as unfair to the fellowship as it would be or has been to any other human institution. True freedom lies in the realization and calm acceptance of the fact that there may very well be no perfect answer. It remains then for each man to discover and share whatever works for him. I don't know about you guys, but I always wanted the manuals. You know, I wanted the manual to life. I wanted the manual to recovery. I wanted the manual to sponsoring and even the manual to finding a higher power. Well, either I've been going to the wrong bookstores or those manuals don't exist. Recovery and growth in program helps me realize that there are very few black and white things in life. This desire for simple answers, for things to be black and white, was the byproduct of the immaturity I had. I wanted things to be black and white because that makes the choices simple. I wanted the choices in my life to become binary because 
it was always intolerable for me to get it wrong, to pick the wrong door, the wrong choice. Well, you know, today, I can accept the ambiguity of life and in all its aspects, but the great thing about losing the black and white thinking is you realize life's really a glorious, multicolored world. I have infinitely more choices than black and white. And you know, I'll probably make some wrong choices along the way. But guess what? I'll survive making that wrong choice from time to time. But I'll take that over living in a black and white world same day. The pamphlet continues, AA will probably always number among its ranks those who, in their fear and their anger, would make AA a kind of spiritual ghetto, a kind of co-ed monastery, where alcoholics hide and lick their wounds, a kind of spiritual ghetto, a sort of co-ed monastery, you know, um, where they talk about defensive words like normies and alkies and appoint accusing fingers at the tigers out there. Well, you know, it's really easy if you spend a lot of time in program and meetings to start dividing the world up into us and them. But, you know, Dr. Paul in Acceptance is the Answer says, acceptance, AA in Acceptance has taught me there's a bit of good in the worst of us and a bit of bad in the best of us, that we're all children of God and we all have a right to be here. Now, do I think everyone could benefit from working the steps, whether or not they have an addiction? Sure. But I also have to be on guard about feeling superior because I work the steps. I need to remember that there are a lot of people in the world who operate in this world and have interactions with people as if they've been working the steps for years. And it came to them naturally. And they probably don't think of themselves as superior to me who had to come and get that through a 12-step program. He then says, there must come a day, it seems to me, when every alcoholic in and out in or out of AA, finally sits down in the presence of his enemies. When he does, he'll be amazed to discover he is attending a meeting of one himself. The day the alcoholic in AA realizes that his enemy is within, that the tigers are largely creatures of his own design and lurk in his own unconscious, that is the day for him when AA becomes what I believe its founders meant to be, a flight into reality. You know, there was a comic strip years ago called Pogo that many of you were too young to remember. You know, but there, the main character said, we have met the enemy and he is us. Well, you know, to paraphrase Dr. Paul, when I'm disturbed, it's almost always me. You know, the great thing that comes through a spiritual awakening is the result of the steps is self-awareness. The ability to almost come out of yourself and look over your own shoulder and observe your actions in real time. You can often correct these things before you need to do a 10-step. You know, and that realization from the AA 12 and 12 about restraint of pen and tongue, and I've also added the send button to that, it's been God sent to me. <clears throat> so Alan starts to wrap up with this. He says, tonight, if I could find one fault with AA, it would be that we have not begun yet to tap the hidden potential of the last seven words of the 12th step. Practice these principles in all our affairs. You know, it occurred to me not long ago when I was sitting in an AA meeting that I'm never aware that I'm sitting next to another white man, a Catholic, an American, a Frenchman, a Mexican, a Jew, Muslim, Hindu, black or brown. I'm only aware that I'm sitting next to another alcoholic. And it seemed deeply significant to me that this feeling of common humanity had been purchased by me at the considerable cost of considerable pain and suffering. 
Now, should this hard-won understanding of and feeling for others be confined to the meeting halls and members of AA? You know, I can tell you, I believe there's a reason why what's left ringing in our ears at the end of the reading of the steps is practice these principles in all our affairs. Because all the work I've done with the steps is pretty much wiped out if I leave the meeting, go back into the world, and become a miserable person and a bad example of recovery. You know? The steps and the big books present an ideal toward which I strive daily. And like everyone else, I fall short a lot. And sometimes I fall spectacularly on my face. But I believe my higher power's greatest desire is that I keep trying to move toward those ideals. And finally, Alan ends with this. He says, who would dare attempt to analyze a phenomenon, diagram a wonder, or parse a miracle? The answer is only a fool. And I trust that tonight I have not been such a fool. All I've tried to do is tell you where I've been these past 16 years and some things I've come to believe because of my journey. You know, at the end of the day, all these thoughts I've imparted to you this morning are all just thoughts from one compulsive eater working the program quite imperfectly <laughs> one day at a time. And Alan's right, of course. We can't analyze the program as a way to work it any better. We can't study the literature and then go off and do it ourselves. This is not an independent study program. It's an experiential program, and it's attached to a disease that is constantly looking for a way to undermine us, no matter how long we've been out of the food. It comes down to this. I cannot do without a higher power, you know, I, you know, I cannot do this without a higher power that will help me with my problem. Because as the old sponsor said, and I've proven through a lot of suffering, if I could have done this myself, I'd have done it before I got here. Thanks for letting me share. John, thank you for this enthralling presentation today. Thank you for bringing to life a pamphlet, a member's eye view of Alcoholics Anonymous in such an outstanding fashion. We appreciate your service. Today's share ID, 12,669. That's 12669. John Kiernan's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. And we will now transition to a question and answer segment. Press star 1 to unmute. First name, first letter of your last name, please. Hi, this is Susan L. Susan L. Who else? Kathy W. Kathy Katie W. G. Katie G. Lou B. Lou B. Stacy T. Stacy T. Let's start with that. Everybody mute except for Susan L. Hi there. I wanted to ask. You said that the um, more seasoned members of the program are less reliant on a higher power than, um, I guess, the younger members. Um, I wanted to ask you to expound on that. Is it that it's not as necessary because we have our, um, the structure, our way of living under check? I just wondered on your reasoning for that statement. 
Sure. Thanks, Susan. Um, actually, that's a misunderstanding. What I, I think the longer you're in program, the more you realize it's all about relying on your higher power. And the, the, your life gets better the more you get the heck out of the way. What I was saying, what he says and what I agree with, is that the longer you're around program, the less you find yourself introspectively trying to understand what that higher power is. You know, I mean, I used to sit there. I mean, I'll tell you the story. I mean, I made my, my poor first sponsor's life miserable because I came in as this great intellectual. And I, I had to have explained to me, okay, how can there be a God if there's a Holocaust? How can there be a God if this happens? And how can there be a God if that happens, you know? And I remember he was really annoying. He said, well, if you could understand that, you'd be God, right? <laughs> but... You know, the fact is, is I look back at how arrogant that even those questionings are, you know, that, you know, you know, one of the other things I did when I came in, you know, before I really got any recoveries, I, I really mistook God for Santa Claus, you know, I'm going to have this list, God, and if you give me everything on this list, then okay, I'll believe in you. Well, you know, that's not God, that's Santa Claus, right? It's about accepting whatever. But the other arrogant one was, okay, God, I'll believe in you, but you've got to explain. You've got to answer these questions. How come there's no Holocaust? How come there's this? How come there's that? Right? I don't do that anymore. You know, that's, that's way above my pay grade. You know, I, I, you know I, I believe now there's a higher power. I believe it's not me. And I just know I need to be doing the best. I have a little um, annoying voice in me. You know, my... my my brother is in another, was in another formal dogmatic program, and, and he would literally quote me chapter and verse. Well, you know, it says this, and, you know, quote some part of the Bible and say, and this is why you have to do this, and this. And I go, you know, Mom, in 12-step programs, we only have one thing. It's this annoying little voice that sits inside of us that when we're off theme, tells us, you know, you know you shouldn't be doing that, or, you know, whatever. And that's, I think, what's left once you've been around for a long time. You just have that little voice. You know what's right. You sort of know what you should be doing. And you don't spend a lot of time, you know, focusing on, okay, what exactly is God? And that's what I meant. I certainly didn't mean that we weren't relying on it. Like I said, quite the opposite. Hope that helped. Thank you. Thanks, Susan L. Kathy W., your turn. Hi, this is Cassie W. in Denver. Um, My question is, like, I guess I'm a newer comer. I'm newer. And um, I keep getting hung up on the allergy thing. Like, it pisses me off. Like, I go into victim mode, like, oh, I'll never get to eat my foods again. I'm so sad. And that, like, I'll I'll stay abstinent for a little while. And then I'll remember, oh, I'll never eat cake again. And I fall right back into the food. So do you have any ideas for a newcomer that's struggling with, like, just being straight up pissed off at the allergy? <laughs> sure. Um, first of all, you know, I've actually gone back to school, and I'm, I'm getting a certificate in being an alcohol and drug counselor. And, and one of the classes we had was on pharmacology. And it was it's absolutely proven, not only with alcohol, but this is absolutely, you know, and again, remember, this is in the big book in 1935, but there was no proof for it then. And it's amazing how science catches up to us and that there is proof 
that this stuff is real. It's real physiologically, you know. In AA, there's a thing called uh, an enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase that burns out. It doesn't matter, but it's, the point is it reinforced what early people in AA said, that this is literally an allergy. And I've read a really good, long scientific paper on uh, on food and, and, and sugar and carbs, and, and sugar, carbs, and fats, actually, as to how they can be addicting. I mean, it's literally scientific study done with, like, rats and everything, you know. Um, and uh, it doesn't really matter other than it makes me, you know, they, they say knowledge uh, of our disease alone won't cure us, which I absolutely believe. I also feel knowledge a little doesn't hurt just so that I understand a little better. And so that helps. And as to the other thing, I always say that my disease, when it's trying to speak to me, it holds up a balance sheet in front of me. The trouble is the balance sheet is whited out. The benefit side is whited out. It holds up that balance sheet and says, oh, you poor thing. You're never going to get to eat that. I mean, you poor thing. Look, they've come out with dark, dark chocolate Reese's peanut butter cups since you've been asked. And, oh, they, you know, they, they come up with this. And, and you won't get to eat that. You won't get to eat that. Or to eat that. Um, and the thing is, it doesn't show you the other side of the balance sheet. It never holds up the balance sheet with the other side uh, there and the first side whited out. It never holds up and says, oh, you poor thing. You're not going to get to be winded walking up three steps anymore. Oh, you poor thing. You're not going to get your pants worn out in the crotch because your thighs rub together. Oh, you poor thing. You're not going to be sitting alone every Saturday night with just food. You know, it doesn't want to show you that, you know. And the other thing that I need to remember is... Um, this is my choice. You know, one of the other things my disease loves to do is to plant ways of thinking in this program that makes it hard to want to keep doing it. You know, words like can't, you know. Uh, I was in another program for a number of years that had a very strict food plan, and you followed it. And I did. And like they promised, I got to a healthy body weight and all that. But then I would find myself right before I ended up coming back to OA going, you can't tell me I can't have such and such. You can't tell it. No, of course they can. You know, this is America. I can go to Walmart and buy it all out, eat it if I want to. But the trouble was my, my like, immature side sort as an authority figure, sort of something sort of something I had to do, you know, and uh, it's so funny because they, 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 they sort of had a mantra in that, that program of uh, we eat three meals a day, nothing in between except uh, sugar-free gum, diet soda, I forget the rest of it, and uh, the funny thing is back here in a, I came back to OA, and there's a great guy out in the valley named Ray, and he's got over 40 years in program, and Ray gets up and he says, you know, my abstinence is I eat whatever I want, whenever I want, as much as I want. If I'm willing to pay the price, and today I am not willing to pay that price. So I eat three weight and measured meals, nothing in between, except I have shows. In other words, he says the exact same thing that program does. But the difference is Ray is working Ray's program. Ray has accepted that this is good for him. It, it has learned to tell that disease to shut up. You know, I remember the same thing. I remember coming in and thinking, oh, my God, this is, this is you know, how am I going to do this? This, the, you know, the, this, this trade-off is just crazy. But years later, you look back and you go, God, it was such a no-brainer. It was such a no-brainer. And I wish I could have seen that earlier, that, that the benefits are there. And I had to lose that concept of I can't have that, I can't have this. I can have it whenever I want but it's going to come with all that pain and suffering 
And it's also going to come with, I may never get it again. I have people, I, you know, again, many, many years in program. I've gone to a lot of funerals in this program. And, and a number of these, and, and I can think of three in particular, two sponsees who I buried and another good friend I buried. And they're dead as a direct result of this disease. And the thing is, they, it wasn't like they never had it. They had it, and they gave it away. You know, and I know that if I could have gone back in the time machine and told them, don't pick up that first bite because it's going to make you go out and then you're going to come back and you're not going to get it and you're going to go out for a while and then you're going to come back and try again and then you're going to go out and then you're going to die. If I could say that to them at exactly the point that they were going to pick up that first compulsive bite, that bite becomes a lot more powerful and a lot more important. And today, I don't know. I'm just another bozo on the bus. And a couple of those guys are smarter than I am. And if that can happen to them, it can happen to me. So I just need to remember, i got to lose the word can't. I can do this whenever I want. I like me enough to not do it today. Hope that helps. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Kathy W. Katie G., your question, please. Thanks, Leah. Thanks, John. Really appreciated your honesty and uh, an introduction to that pamphlet. I've heard it before. Look forward to buying it. My question for you is this, um, our meeting has been going through a lot of transformation and it really hit me like a two by four in the most beautiful way when you said that long-term people go to meetings to listen. I thought that was incredible and really resonated with my own ideals in terms of what I'm trying to get to with service and just wondering, I hate the word balance, but I'm going to have to use it. How do you balance with that, that with being of service? So for example, you are of service today. How do you take that back in terms of attending meetings um, as a long-term person to listen? Um, just wondering what your own ideals might be around that. Thanks. Sure, Katie. Nice to hear from you. Um, yeah, well, it still comes down. We're here to share experience, strength, and hope. You know, I always tell the story that when I first came in, I was in my first week of sobriety, and uh, the meeting I was at went around the room. In fact, we were seated around a long square of table. And it was literally, it was a topic meeting then. They used to have topics where somebody would introduce it, they'd talk about it for a second, and they'd go around the room, and they'd just decide to go to the left or they'd go to the right. It got to me, and here I am, maybe four or five days sober, and, and I start expounding on my wonderful thoughts, my great intellect. And, and by the way, that was before we had timers. Thank God we have timers. Um, but at the end of the meeting, I, I get up to leave, and I see my sponsor in the doorway, and he's going, come here. <laughs> And what happened is he said, okay, kid, i got to explain something to you. Twelve-step meetings are not group therapy. Read what it says in the preamble. We're here to share experience, strength, and hope. And right now, kid, you ain't got much of it, so sit down. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not so touchy-feely in AA. But the point is, it, it, it really is true. There are some meetings I, I, I would so desperately love, you know, uh, to see changed. You know, there, it's so funny that, I, my, uh, me, Harlan, and Lori, uh, Lori, uh, three of us who do a lot of retreats, we have the same, uh, uh, we have a different phrase for the same kind of meeting that, we, that we're talking about now. I, again, I call them group therapy meetings. Harlan calls it uh, dieting with group support. And Lori calls it the soap opera, <laughs> meaning I have to go back to the meeting to find out if Jenny broke up with her boyfriend again or whatever. But the point is, is that, those kind of meetings, they really don't help a lot, you know? Um, you know, and it's not like that doesn't happen out here in L.A., 
but here's the thing. There are people who've been around for years who I, I, I see come to meetings and use it as group therapy. And here's the thing. If it worked, I wouldn't say a word. But when I hear these people get up and, and all they do is talk about their problems, they're talking about the same problems today that they were talking about five years ago. You know why? Because nothing changes if nothing changes. How are you using the steps to change those problems? And, and that's why I, I really do. I point people toward vision. I said, listen to that meeting. Listen to these meetings Monday to Friday. It's not like people don't talk about themselves, but they talk about it in reference to what was read, and they talk to about it, how it's changed and how they're better, how they used to be and how they are now. And, and so it's not like these people... You know, I, I think I, I could pick up like five of them off the top of my head. It's not like they never speak. It's not like I never speak. But I wait until there's really something to add to the conversation, maybe something that will help. But just to get up and talk about themselves, these people don't do anymore. And I think that's finding that balance of, you know, if I have something important to say, I will. But it's not to say to unburden myself. It's not to say to show how smart I am. But it's something that would help in whatever's going on the discussion or it's what's been talked about. And it's always from the me. It isn't, you know, here's what you should do. It's, hey, this is what I did. Like, like uh, Alan mentions in that book, uh, pamphlet, which is so important. People need to hear, this is what I did, not here's what you should do. Hope that helps. Thank you, Katie G, for the question. Lou B., your turn. Hi there. This is Lou B. from um, Cincinnati, Ohio. Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you well. Okay, great. Um, my question comes really close to what uh, Katie G. was bringing up, only I'm on the flip side. So I've been relapsing on and off in the last um, six months. And um my sponsor, you know, reaching out to a newcomer is a way to be of service when the when my mind is going crazy and um, and I'm thinking about food. But she reminded me today that really I need to be reaching out to recovered people. Um, I was just wondering if um, maybe just some guidance when I'm calling someone who's recovered. I want to be a good listener. I don't want to call and just talk about me, me, me. So maybe just. Um, Maybe some conversation starters would be would be great if you could offer that. Thank you very much. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, again, one of the things I got I got taught really early on is that that phrase "trust God, clean house, and help another person." Um, I remember I was going through some real tough stuff, and, and you know, I think it was during my relapse cycle, and a, and a sponsor said to me, "You know, there's a reason there's a phone there, and and you know, for a lot of people, it's that 500 pound phone." and to pick up and contact another. You know, I, I've heard said the opposite of addiction is connection. And to be able to reach out and talk to somebody. But what I was told to do is, is it, you know, because I, I was sort of doing the same thing. Well, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. You know. And my sponsor said, you pick up the phone, you call somebody. And if you get them on the phone, you say, how is your day? You let them talk for a while. Then if things come up, you may talk about it. But listen to them, because it's an amazing thing how we can ground out. We think we have such problems. That's the great thing about the fellowship in the program. You come into a meeting with all these problems, and there's this huge weight of the world on you. And then you start to hear about other people's problems, and you go, you know, comparatively, mine aren't as bad. 
but th this way you reach out and you, and you uh, can sort of uh, hear them first, and then I'm sure they will at some point ask how things are going with you. But that's always one of the great ways. I also tell my sponsees about about the phone. Start going up to people at meetings that you hear and you like, and and just introduce yourself, even if you haven't, and say, hey, do you mind if I make you one of my outreach call people? Because then. You've broken the ice. It isn't going to be a cold call. Hi, you don't. You may not know me, but I go to this meeting and I've seen you at meetings. This way, you've made a connection and they've put a face to the name, so that when you call, it won't be that 500-pound phone. You've already made a connection, and you're just, you know, I'm John. Just call them, you know, the, you know, uh, about program. And and it is. It's so important to to hear things. And and. You know, if, you know, uh, if you're going through a specific thing, that's the great thing about programming. You know, it's, it, I really believe it's a takes a village kind of thing. In other words, I have a, I have sponsor, and, and my sponsor can help me with an awful lot of my things, but not all of them. You know, my old sponsor Carl, who, who he moved out of town, so I got somebody else. I was going through something with my, my a past relationship with a girlfriend, and I'm like, I don't know, you know, I was ranting one day about, what's with women? They do this and this and this. And he, he listened for a minute, and he said, John, you know what? I'm a gay single man. I can't help you. <laughs> and, but I so respected him that he didn't think he had to have all the answers. And he said, hey, call my sponsor, Jack. He's been married for a long time. He can help you with that. Um, but the, the point being is that there's probably somebody who's gone through whatever it is you're going through at this very minute that can help you. And that's why we all need to reach out, not just the sponsors, because we get different things. And it's just always good to hear a different perspective on, on your problem and, and to get, you know, to get to hear other people. So I, I don't know if that helps, but that's some thoughts. Thanks, Lou B. Stacy T, your turn for a question. Good morning. This is Stacey T. Recovered in Ohio. Thanks so much, John, for your share. And uh, I do have this pamphlet from, I believe, talking to you, um, and I appreciate it. And as I continue um, my journey, I have a question for you. Um, I am in the helping profession, and there are times I... Uh, see folks that have addictions and other times not. Whether it's AA, OA, Al-Anon, NA, SA, whatever it is, is this um, just the kind of pamphlet I would want to um, hand them? And yeah. even if they've had... Um, some exposure to understanding the 12 steps um, and they're pretty sure that the God idea is completely not for them. Um, just hearing you explain it again and having read it myself, I um, I look to feel less hesitant if that, that's just really, that's just really the word. So I welcome your uh, thoughts about that and thanks a lot for your share. Sure. Um, yeah, it, it's an interesting thing. I um, again, I'm, I'm going getting my certificate in in alcohol drug counseling, and one of the big questions, because a lot of us are in recovery, who are in the class, about you know, do you self-reveal? Do you talk about the fact that you're also in a program? And it becomes one of those. It's it's really 
something everybody's got to figure out and look at the situation about. And um, and also in that class, I remember uh, one time there's this one person who was like, I guess, was sober but couldn't stand AA. It was, oh, you know, this, this religious program, this and that. And, and I... I found it a little difficult, I, and I, I said, you know, well, what you're dealing with here is prejudice, you know. Um, I see that there's a program, I'm not going to mention, but it's a TV program I really like with this guy who's like really super liberal, and I know he's not prejudiced in any way, but boy, when it comes to religion, you know, I, I would love to get him someday and say, hey, if, if, if I talked about race the way you talk about religion, uh, you'd call me a bigot, you know, because people lump the concept of God and higher power together. You know, if I have just the slightest belief in higher power, uh, that guy will lump me in with, you know, uh, snake handlers in eastern Kentucky, you know. But what I tell people is, look, there are plenty of atheists in, in programs. You know, somebody, I'm not going to tell the story, but a very, you know, person who does a lot of these special editions who says he's an atheist. That, But it got, somehow you have to find a way to lose the uh, prejudice against the word God because it's it's just there. They're not going to change it. Uh, uh, I would prefer to see higher power more, but I'm not going to, you know, be, you know, so egotistical to think I'm going to rewrite any part of the program. But that I I beg people to exactly what I was told. You know, when I came in, I, I had such an argument with a guy about, I can't believe in a, uh, you know, I can't be part of a religious program. And he said, no, it's spiritual. And I pointed to the steps. You see where it says God there? And it has him with a capital H. And he looked at it for a minute and he said, okay, leave it out. And I was like, what? He said, leave it out. You, you know, your disease is looking for a reason to argue. Nobody's ever going to make you believe anything. Nobody's going to tell you you have to believe anything. Just try and keep an open mind. And and, and that was the big difference. And um, uh, one of my past special editions I did was on on understanding higher power if you're an agnostic, you know, because I uh, I came in, I called myself an atheist, and, and now I realize I wasn't an atheist, <clears throat> I was an agnostic. I always joked that, um, I said, uh, I can't be an atheist because I don't have that kind of faith, <laughs> you know, because if you think about it, I mean, if you understand the definition and difference between atheism and agnosticism, uh, an atheist says, I there is no God. And what I would always say to an atheist is, okay, prove there is no God. And no, you can't use the phrase prove there is. We can talk about that at a later time, but prove there is no God. And of course you can't. So if you can't prove it, what do you do? You use faith. <laughs> you know. But one of the things, I, I, I did a, a special edition, and if it will help anybody who's really battling with it, it's up on, uh, it's up on the website. Uh, I forget exactly what it is, but if you type in John Kay, uh, one of them is about you know, agnostics. And I do think this pamphlet helps a lot of people who have trouble with that, because it does sort of talk about God and higher power, and it means something different for everybody. And uh, and again, it can be left out. There's plenty of people. And and if they do have that kind of uh, uh, resistance to say, hey, you can leave it out. There's plenty of people whose lives have been saved that will tell you to this day they don't believe there's a higher power, but they're recovered because they used the program. I always say that uh, it's the rowboat. My belief is program is the rowboat that was brought down from my higher power and that all we got to do is jump in that rowboat. Now, I believe that rowboat has a little string going up somewhere into the, you know, to a higher power. But you, you know what? Cut the string. It, just believe in the rowboat. 
you know, because I've also said, you know, no matter what you believe about a God or a higher power, you probably think it's been around since before 1935. Well, you know what? Before then, people were dying without any hope of alcohol, with alcoholism. And some of those people included priests, ministers, rabbis, nuns. And if it was simply a matter of a conscious contact with a higher power alone, they would not have had to come to the program. And I know I have friends who are priests, ministers, and rabbis. Um, it's about the program. It's about the program, and you, that I don't believe you need to absolutely believe. I think it helps. You may come to realize, gee, there is something there, and it isn't the thing I was given. It wasn't that hand-me-down God I talk about. I hope that helps. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Stacey T. All right, we can take another group who have questions. Star 1 to unmute. Offer your name, please, including the first letter of your last name. Donna Eddie M. Kendra S. Robin DZ. Edith R. Uh, Florence F. Karen W. Uh, Let me tell you who I have. I missed a few folks. Donna B. Eddie M. Robin DZ. Judith R. Karen W. Who did I miss? Uh, me, I I'm think Lauren. You mean Connie T? Connie T. I was the first. I was the first one, but you said a different name. I think it might. Okay, gotcha. Out. Thanks for the correction. Sure. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Margaret D. Margaret T. D. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, gotcha. All right, let's go with that. Starting with Connie T. Mm. Hi, and thanks, John. I appreciate the uh, share. This is Connie T. from Pennsylvania. And I believe, if I heard you correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, you, when you were talking about the specific foods and stuff, you said it's not sugar anonymous and it's not carbs anonymous. And you said if you're one of those people who can eat that uh, and be have food neutrality, then more power to you. Most of us can't. My question would be, I'm one that cannot, but my question is if there are people that can do that, then how do you align what the book says about having the allergy? Does that make sense? Oh, that's a, yeah, no, it does. And it's a really good question that I've always sort of scratched my head about. Because, I mean, I know somebody who's in program. They actually sometimes listen to Vision here, who I have an immense amount of respect for. She she has got about 20 years. She's keeping 100 pounds off. She actually uh, moved out here from New York, another fellow New Yorker in L.A., and uh, – uh, and and she says she eats all foods moderately. Uh, and 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 I don't believe she's lying. I don't believe she wasn't a compulsive eater. It's just that somehow something got relieved. In other words, it may be that there was at the point of coming into program uh, a physical addiction, and they somehow lost it. I, yeah, it becomes one of those things that it is hard sometimes when you hear about that. To say, well, wait a minute. Where's the where's the physical allergy component in this? If we if we believe it's you know allergy of the body and obsession of the mind, where is that? And I, that's one of those shrugs. I gotta say, I, I'm not 100 percent sure um, that maybe it was relieved. I know for me, I'm never gonna keep testing it. <laughs> you know, hey, well, so and so says she uh, used to eat that, and then, and then she can eat it. You know, I tried that. That's why I ended up in that other program, by the way, is because my immaturity. Well, I'm slipping and sliding. I was 12, 14 years in program before, you know, when I was slipping and sliding in my relapse cycle. 
I would sit there and say, well, if so-and-so can eat cake, I want to eat cake. And if so-and-so can have that, I want to have that. And the reality is so-and-so can eat that. I have sponsees who can't eat food. I can and vice versa. And, and I said it, I, I was on the um, uh, one about more about, uh, the special edition about more about alcoholism a couple months back. And I said, you know, one of the hardest things for me to grasp, and I finally did, is not only am I bodily and mentally different from my fellows in general, I am bodily and mentally different from my fellows in OA, and that some of those people can do something I can't. And, and again, I don't understand it exactly. It's, it's, it is one of those conundrums, but I also know that there's people who say they can do that. Which, the thing is, is, part of me would almost like to say, please don't say it out loud, <laughs> because newcomers or people in relapse, well, maybe I'll just keep working it one of these days, I'll be like so-and-so and be able to eat all foods moderately because uh, I have had that delusion smashed. I can't eat all foods moderately. Wish I could. I don't damn anybody either. I hear people say, well, I only eat, I don't eat sugar. In other words, there's some kind of a, you know, I'm superior because I don't eat sugar. Well, I'm just like, God bless you. I wish I could. <laughs> anyway, I hope that helps. Thank you, Connie T. Eddie M., your turn. Press star one to unmute. Eddie M. Perhaps I got that name wrong. Okay, let's move on to Robin DZ. We'll come back to Eddie. Robin DZ, star one to unmute. Good morning. Thank you. This is Robin DZ from South Carolina, and I appreciate your presentation, John. If I understood correctly, you mentioned a scientific paper um, mm -hmm. proving the uh, allergic reactions in the brain to uh, sugar and carbs and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. uh, if you could, um, could you tell me the name of that paper so that I would have something to give uh, some information to give to someone who, you know, says, well, I have to know, uh, you know, I have to see and have proof that mm -hmm. there is an allergic reaction in the brain to those substances. What would be sure. the name of that paper? All right. I don't want to mention the paper right now because we're, you know, we try not to talk about non-program things. At the end of the meeting, I'll give you both my phone number and my uh, email and if you do that, I, I have I have the link actually saved on my uh, on my browser, and I'll I'll send you that link. But and and it's it's a pretty dense scientific peer reviewed article, so yeah, hopefully he or she knows how to read that. Uh, but it does go into you know a lot of those things. I can tell you, years ago, I remember reading a study uh, of, of scientists you know, we're trying to quantify degrees of addiction with all different kinds of substances. You know, with like rats. And the two that they found that were most addictive was nicotine and sugar, more than heroin, alcohol, cocaine, all the others. So I will get you that at the end of the meeting. You, uh, you'll hear it, or if you can't stay on, you know, uh, ask Leah. Or actually, you know what, my, my, my info is in, if you're on the, uh, uh, on the member list of the, of the website, you can, you can log on, and that information is there as well. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Robin DZ, and of course, thank you, John, for
for abiding to our tradition. Judith R., your turn with a question. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, John. Um, Judith R. recovered in Vermont. Um, John, I'm, I'm curious about the, the use of the word therapy. Um, I think it was used in the article and probably used in a different way than we use it on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm especially interested because when I was in Mexico, um, the OA meetings constantly spoke about OA as therapy, and people used it uh, instead of a psychologist. So I'm just fascinated by, and I'm glad you talked about that it is not therapy the way we usually think about it. Anyway, um, wasn't it used in the article, and how was it used differently? Sure. Nice to hear you, Judith. Um, yeah, well, you got to remember, at least the context of this pamphlet, uh, he's speaking to mostly non program people. He's speaking about people who are going to be going into that field. So he's essentially speaking their language. And therapy is one of those. Now, let's face it, the other thing about when we say therapy, we all get an idea immediately, if we're talking about behavioral stuff, that we think of therapy as, you know, sitting in a chair opposite a therapist. But therapy can mean a lot of things. My wife's in the middle of getting physical therapy for something right now. And therapy and therapeutic just means, you know, helping. And, and yeah, I don't use therapy most of the time when I'm talking about it, but, you know, in a way, if you think about it, it sort of is a therapy. It's just a, the, the mode of therapy is the big book and the steps and all that. But, yeah, I think the main reason you heard therapy that many times in this pamphlet, it was because, you know, communication always works best if you can speak in the language of the person who, uh, who is listening. They can hear it better. Uh, so it, it, in terms of being able to, you know, get across to those people who weren't in the program, I think he, that's the main reason you use therapy. Like I said, it, it's, you know, it's like God, you, you know, therapy means something different to everybody. So uh, I don't find a large trouble with it. I hardly ever say it in a meeting, uh, you know, oh, this is therapy. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with it either, I think. But that was the reason, I think, because he, he wanted to connect with the people who were hearing it. Thank you. Sure. Thank you, Judith R. Let me give a shout-out to Eddie M. Eddie, if you're available, star one to unmute to pose a question. I know it was some male. <laughs> yes, yes. Was there a male who was interested in posing a question? <laughs> star one. Okay, perhaps not. Let's move on then to Karen W. Hi, uh, this is Karen W. And I had a question. Um, I I was encouraged listening to your talk, and um, I heard you say, you know, like the first thirty days, focus on the food, putting the food down, food down. And um, I've been in this program for uh, double digit years, and I've done so much step work and all kinds of stuff and I still keep relapsing and I I I don't I don't know what the key is I don't I don't know what's missing and um I guess uh my question is really that that 30 days food down and you just kind of white knuckle 
and focus on that. And I've had it for five months at a time, twice, you know, over all these years. But I just can't seem to put it down. I keep picking back up. The mental defense, there's no fight. And um, I just, I guess I'm looking for some words of encouragement maybe. And um, I have a sponsor and I've, you know, I'm very familiar with the big book and I've done lots of childhood wound excavation and I just, I've done a lot, but I still, I still, I still relapse. Okay. Yeah. I'm willing to, yeah. Let me talk about that a little. Um, I'll tell you that, that my abstinence today, 24 years and, uh, let's see, what is that? Oh, 10 days. Um, uh, started uh, in that, in, I was actually in the other program at the time, the one that had the very uh, strict thing, and, and I, it took me months to get it in that program, and I would I would start it on Monday, and I'd make it to Thursday, and I wouldn't get it, and I'd, I'd lose it over and over, and I had a series of sponsors there who were wonderful people, wonderful ladies who would try to be encouraging, and, well, pray to God, do this, do that, and, and they would, you know, they would try to help, but it didn't help. Finally, I ended up with this sponsor, and it was a guy, it was a guy named Ward, and he said, okay, here's the key to the beginning of abstinence. It's going to suck. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and it was so funny that he said it that way. Uh, and, and, you know, because here's the thing. In fact, he said your first 30 days of abstinence are going to suck. Uh, they, they didn't all suck. A lot, most of them didn't suck. And I thought, wow, I'm ahead of the game. And when they didn't suck, I was like, oh, that's what Ward told me it was going to suck. And I think sometimes we, we want to we want to gloss over the fact that this is difficult, especially do not discount the physical effects of withdrawal from some of the substances you may be doing. And, but it does get better. I, I always tell people, look, you know, those of us have been doing it for years, if it was as hard as it was today for me at 24 years that it was in my first, you know, month or two, I wouldn't keep doing this. I'm not a masochist. None of us are masochists. But it doesn't. It gets easier. It gets easier. Yeah, there may be times some real emotional thing happens, but for the most part, it's easy. But what I tell people is to get to the point where it's easy, you got to go through the point where it was hard first, and then it will get easier. And and one of the things is I and, and those who know my story, and there's a talk on relapse up on there that I did. It was the first one I ever did, a uh, special edition. Um, I, uh, I, I always said it was, uh, I kept, I would get a certain amount of time, I'd lose it. And so I kept going through the hardest part over and over and over. I, I use the example, of, mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have ever had to jump a car, you know, uh, you know, jump a, a standard. And you you got to get a bunch of people together to start pushing the car. And it's really hard to get the car going. But after a while, it's not that hard to keep pushing it, you know. And the thing is, is I would, I would really work hard on pushing the car. And just about the time it was getting easy, I let go of the car and let it roll and stop again. So I was always going through the hardest part over and over. And the other thing I, I say is, um, you know, why, I tell people sometimes white knuckle abstinence is definitely not the preferred abstinence. But if it's white knuckle versus eating, take the white knuckle because the white knuckle will end. If you eat, you're just going to be going through it over and over and over. And, and uh, it's again, you're going to be going through the hardest part. And just to realize that it will get better. And, and, just, and the, like you said, the hardest thing is dealing with uh, those strange mental blank spots like Fred had. Um, and that's why that's, oh, there's almost 
you know, again, I can deal with the uh, the whiskey and the milk thing. I can deal with the trolley car. But that strange mental blank spot, that's the toughest one where I have to be doing all the work because otherwise, you know, I could get hit upside the head with that in a dark alley someday. And so, but for now, uh, you know, again, it, it's first things first. W- worry about getting getting things together and, and, and manage the expectations that, no, it's not going to be all breezy and, and flowers and the, the absence fairy isn't going to hit you on the head and it's going to be a little difficult for a while. But I promise you, it gets better. I hope that helps. Thank you so much. Uh, definitely. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Karen W. Our final question for this morning comes from Margaret D. Star one. Um, good morning. Mm-hmm. May I be heard? I hear you. Oh, yay! Oh, I'm so amazed. Um, hey, um, John, just a quick question. First of all, thank you for your service, and Leah, thank you as always for everything that you do. So, um, if AA literature is allowed in OA meetings, why don't we use more of the AA literature? I mean, it's like the source mm-hmm. instead of, I, I don't mean to say like getting it secondhand because I understand that, um, you know, like-mindedness, overeaters need to be with com- other compulsive mm-hmm. eaters, but... Um, why don't we use more AA literature? It just makes so much sense. Thank you. Sure. Uh, i got to be careful here to not get into politics about this because there, there is a component about it that I'll be willing to talk to you offline because I don't want to denigrate anything or start talking politics online. Uh, I know that I've got a good friend who leads a lot of retreats who I finally had to beg to stop talking down OA literature. Because uh, he doesn't like it at all. I, I I think some of it's perfectly fine. I I I think the OA 12 and 12 on when it comes to the traditions is one of the best examples and de- uh, descriptions of traditions I ever read. Uh, but when I'm asked, like at a retreat, I say I prefer the big book and I prefer the AA 12 and 12. Part of the reason I prefer the AA 12 and 12 is that when I came in, there was no OA 12 and 12. And then for a long time, there was just the OA-12. I still have a copy of my one. They did the steps before they did the tradition. Um, and, yeah, I think, you know, it, it, you know uh, I'm, a, I'm a history nut and a writer, and, and one of the things they always say is the best, if you're going to write historical things, is the best thing is to have the, uh, you know, the original, the original documents, not, not something that comes out afterwards. And for me, that's why I happen to like the big book and the AA-12 and 12. The other thing is, is that, one of the reasons I really push sometimes the AA 12 and 12 is, um, remember, this, the big book was written, you know, when people only had a few years of sobriety, you know, and I, I joke that that's why I think there's only one paragraph for each for step six and step seven is because it takes you a long time to realize just how important those steps are in, you know, daily recovering life. And that, but by the, by the 50s, when, when the, the AA 12 and 12 was written, they had a much better understanding of it and fleshed it out a lot more. But yeah, I mean, it is one of those things. I can talk to you later. I think that, uh, some of the hierarchy of, of OA uh, doesn't, and some people are fine with it. And, and I know there's one person on the board who is just vehemently wants to get rid of access to AA literature. And I think it would be a huge mistake uh, because, you know, again, this is the mothership and, uh, there's, I have never had a problem with translating anything in this big book 
into food for the most part, except the part that says well, when you're having a problem, eat chocolate. But that's that's about the only thing. <laughs> anyway, um, take my number and I can talk to you further about it offline. Thank you, Margaret D, for the question. Thanks to everybody who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, John, for such a rich presentation this morning, and it was so uh, skillfully carried out, as usual. Thank you. Always a pleasure to have you on the line. We're going to close the share ID for this presentation, 12,669-12669. And we're going to close from page 164. You'll notice that it's in a chapter entitled, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then. <laughs>